0: I'm looking at clinicians who have now treated more than 150,000 patients with hydroxychloroquine. They've been using it in their practices for a year, a year and a half. So where is this disconnect?
1: Today I sit down with Dr. Harvey Risch, a professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health and Yale School of Medicine. He says therapeutics like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin can be highly effective against COVID when they are deployed early on and in combination with different medications. These drugs have been suppressed for reasons that have nothing to do with the science and the medicine. And we take a look at booster shots, natural immunity, and what Risch views as the politicization of science and medicine. Natural immunity is how we're going to get out of this endemic disease. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Jekielek. Before we start, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, American Hartford Gold. As you may have heard, American Thought Leaders was demonetized by YouTube, and after many months, their rather opaque appeals process has really led nowhere. Yet there are still companies like American Hartford Gold that value freedom of speech and honest discourse, and are sponsoring shows like ours. With inflation on the rise, investing in gold is another option to diversify your assets. American Hartford Gold is a patriotic, family-owned company that not only sells precious metals right to your front door, they can help you deposit gold into a retirement account, like an IRA or a 401k. They've got an a rating with the Better Business Bureau, and right now they have a promotion where they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. You can just call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or you can text American to 65532. Thank you, American Hartford Gold, for sponsoring American Thought Leaders. So, Dr. Risch, as a professor of epidemiology at Yale, you've been watching the development of this pandemic. How, just characterize it for me in general. Like, what what are we looking at here and how has the response fared? So,
0: overall, I'd say that we've had a pandemic of fear. And the fear has affected almost everybody, whereas the infection has affected relatively few. It's serious in some of those people, as we've seen but by and large it's been a very selected pandemic and predictable. We didn't know at the beginning how predictable it was. At least we lay people so to speak in, in the pandemic didn't know that. Uh, I'm sure that the pharma companies and the countries who had experienced it slightly before us had a better picture than we did but it was very distinguished between young versus old, healthy versus chronic disease people. So we quickly learned who was at risk for the pandemic and who wasn't. And however, the fear was manufactured for
1: everybody. And that's what's characterized the the whole pandemic is that degree of fear and people's response to the fear. You're saying it's been manufactured. Explain this to me. How do you see this? I think that the people who were in the nominal
0: positions of authority initially spread a much worse picture of the, the, the dire nature of this, that everybody was at risk, everybody could die, everybody needed to find protection, everybody needed to stay in their homes, you know, and, and, and not go out, not socialize, and so on, to protect themselves and protect society. And people were quite afraid of that message. As anybody would be, because one trusted in, in those times with the government, with authorities, with scientific people, with medical people in authority, the public health institutions, all saying the same message, starting in about March, you know, February, March of uh, last year, and so we all kind of believed this, and 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 therefore all of our anxiety levels were raised, and we all made decisions to curtail, you know, to various degrees, our exposures to other people some more than, than others, but I think everybody had levels of anxiety that really affected how they carried out their life at that time.
1: Yeah, let's talk about the China piece of this because I'm thinking about the actually as you were talking about the fear, I was thinking about the fear element. I mean, there was all this imagery of people dropping dead ostensibly for the from the virus. There was all this imagery of lockdowns, and then there was all sorts of propaganda around the success of lockdowns in that system. And look how we've conquered. Look how few people have died because of our great policies. Um, How how does this intersect with what we saw here in North America? So,
0: you know, we look at, at the videos that we got from uh, uh, Wuhan and, and surrounding areas in retrospect, you know, to see well, what was real about that and, and what wasn't. You have to recognize that almost every year there's been an epidemic release from, you know, the, the live food markets in, uh, in China in various places and so what was different about this one is that China has admitted to those right away and tried to fix them. Whereas the present one, it did not do that. It withheld information about it for two months uh, at least And, and, and that withholding of information is a totally different behavior than how China has been in the past. And that appears to be a very significant difference as to why it would do that. And then we know now that some of those videos were not truthful videos about that man falling over in the street and playing dead and things like that, that we have reason to believe that those were artificial videos made to, to induce fear, basically. And so while the, the virus did get out in Wuhan and there were, the lockdowns were there to suppress it and they worked. In fact, when you suppress 100% of the population, you, you, you weld their doors shut, you know, and, and so on, you can do that. We're not as draconian in the United States, at least a, haven't been. Um, and so it's, it's clear that the virus got out, and whether there was an intention that it would be controllable on the local scene but exportable to the rest of the world is an, a risk-benefit equation that had to have been made in China at the time. In other words, China also faced the risk of this could get out and affect the whole country. It did get to other places besides Wuhan. So, but, but I think they calculated that they would be able to control it better than we could and, and they also all knew that, that uh, chloroquine treated it because they had published on that five or, or more years in the past. We published on that too from NIAID at NIH a paper on, on chloroquine and virus infections. I think it might have been SARS-1 from 2005 that, that was published. That So we knew, people knew, the scientific community knew that these viruses existed, that they were hazardous, that they could be treated, but nobody knew exactly the extent the ramifications of how well the treatment would work, whether that was enough
1: by itself, what the hazards of using that drug were, what the long term ramifications, all of that was still an unknown territory. And this is something, of course, that you've been very vocal about the use of the potential use of therapeutics or, and then the sort of seeming uh, discounting, mass discounting of the use of therapeutics at the same time. Where are we at with respect to all this right now? So let me, say, let me just say how I got into this, because it puts
0: a picture on, on this. Um, I'm a member of the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering. In early 2020, it formed a committee to, of kind of non-standard, non-real public health people. My dean, Stan Vermont, was in it. I was in it. Um, to try to figure out how to help the state to reopen the state after its lockdown. And so we started behave- looking at behavioral aspects. We had a, psych- a psychologist in it. Um, we had aerodynamic aspects. We had people who designed jet airplanes. Um, there was- it was a very eclectic bunch of scientists trying to figure out how we could help the, the situation. And I started looking at the disparate information in the in medical and lay media about early treatment. And it just didn't make sense that hydroxychloroquine was being badmouthed by the media when it was being studied in hospital patients, and saying that it didn't work for outpatients when it hadn't been studied in outpatients. People, an outpatient disease is totally different than hospital disease. There, it's like night and day. Outpatient disease is like when you get the flu. You have fevers and chills and muscle aches and headache and sore throat and runny nose and cough. That's typical flu-like illness outpatient. Inpatient is a very severe pneumonia where the immune system debris fills up the lungs and it's it's a totally different disease the virus is more or less long gone by that time and it's the immune system that's overreacting to create that. So it's a different disease, requires different treatment and yet this was being peddled as something that didn't work in hospital disease therefore didn't work in outpatient disease. Now So I wrote a paper looking at just hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir, which were the two agents that were being talked about in in studies at the time in in early, mid 2020. And I didn't expect much to come out of that other than to say, look, here's something that we could be using. You know, my my naive state, you know, thinking that it's just science here. And I had already uh, Dr. Zelenko who had been using it very successfully. He had had treated 800 patients. He had had two deaths or three deaths. Uh, two people who were too late to treat, one who didn't stay on the regimen, so essentially he was saying that this, his regimen of hydroxychloroquine and zinc, vitamin D and other things, supportive medications that he was using in a recipe for treatment worked extremely well. And It's like don't believe your lying eyes, you know, he knows that it worked because he was dealing with those 800 patients himself. Many of them were high-risk patients and he, so he knew that it was working. So I came into this I wrote uh, uh, an op-ed for Newsweek saying here it is, we should use it, there's no cost. Even if it doesn't work, it's 100% safe because it's been used by in tens of billions of doses for 60 years and, and hundreds of millions of people, You know, even if it doesn't work, it, it, it can't do any harm. And then I got pushback from my colleagues saying what do I know about you know, infectious disease and epidemics and so on, that I'm a cancer epidemiologist. But they didn't do their homework because my PhD after medical school, I got a PhD in mathematical modeling of infectious epidemics. And I published on that and I had a very clear idea of how epidemics come and go and what herd immunity is and when it happens and how it happens and all of that stuff. And the idea about using drugs to treat things is something that I do as just a regular part of my cancer etiology studies. So this was not a great leap for me to be involved in in, in these these topics. And for them, it was just smear, you know. And so I, I didn't respond to that, which is appropriate. They have their freedom of speech to say what they want to say. I have my freedom of speech to say what I want to say. You know, and let the readers decide which seems the the, the truest, the, the most accurate.
1: You know, just sort of watching this as someone who's worked in Madagascar, worked in Africa, you know how often hydroxychloroquine is used, you know, in these parts of the world to treat malaria, for example, for however long it's not. You realize it's extremely safe. You don't have to. I'm saying is, you don't have to be a medical doctor or a, or a professor of epidemiology know. to know this. Right? Well, the CDC <laughs> yeah. had a guide to using
0: it for malaria, and it said it's safe for everyone, safe for pregnant women, safe in utero, safe for young children, safe for elderly frail people, safe for everybody. So anybody can use it.
1: Yeah, but suddenly it's not safe anymore. Right. right. So, so what were you thinking? I was thinking cognitive dissonance. <laughs>
0: The, in other words, that here I know it's safe. Uh, at that time when I wrote the paper there were five studies. Within another four or five months there were ten studies involving more than 40,000 patients who had been studied including some national studies in, in Iran and Saudi Arabia with tens of thousands of, of patients that provide a very clear five-fold or better protection against mortality with this drug. And that's not even used in the recipes. That's just used hydroxychloroquine either by itself or with zinc by and large in, in, in these studies. And it was very clear that the evidence was, was extremely strong, as strong a evidence as I've ever seen in anything in my career in epidemiology, for a, a, an association, the magnitude of an association. So we as epidemiologists deal with What people don't understand about epidemiology is the science of epidemiology deals with the representativeness of the samples that we take in order to study something. So we don't study whole populations and we don't study everybody who's ever used a drug. We take a sample of the population and a sample of people who've gotten cancer and a sample of this and a sample of that. And we have to know that those samples are accurate and generalized to the whole population, that that they represent everything. And so we agonize. What we do for our bread and butter is agonizing how good the samples are. And so we deal with the problem, of what's called confounding, when a sample is biased, when some other variable is really causing the relationship that we're studying. And so this was the claim that these studies, because they're not randomized, were biased. They were confounded. But in fact, it's not true. And there's a whole literature showing that modern epidemiologic studies that are not randomized provide exactly the same results as randomized studies. And this was described in a meta-analysis of meta-analysis, a giant analysis of more than 10,000 studies that showed that, that modern epidemiologic studies that are not randomized give answers within 10% on average compared to the randomized control trials. When the randomized trials are done accurately and, and not misrepresented and, and not subverted, which many of them have been in the last couple of years. So this is my bread and butter of the field that I understand and how it does these studies and what these studies were purporting to say was accurate and a very strong signal. And so I was nonplussed to find that people were saying, these are anecdotal. When, when you know, somebody, would, Dr. Fauci would come and say, oh, that evidence is anecdotal. And I'm looking at 40,000 patients. I'm looking at clinicians who have now treated more than 150,000 patients with fewer than two dozen deaths with hydroxychloroquine. <clears throat> And he's saying it's anecdotal, and I'm saying, the, you know, these 50 doctors all know that it's not anecdotal. They've been using it in their practices for a year, a year and a half, you know. So where is this disconnect? This disconnect has to be on purpose. It, it's not an accident. It's, it's a smear campaign against a drug for a purpose. And people have to just, well, where is the purpose coming from for why one would suppress something that costs 80 cents a day to treat? You know, even it's even cheaper than ivermectin. Ivermectin is ten dollars a day or, or whatever it is. Hydroxychloroquine is a tenth of that. So you have to address what are the economic what's the economic playing field as to what is is causing all of these events and all of these people to be making the arguments that they have, and in fact without citing data. So you find that people who disagree with me, they don't provide counter evidence, they say the FDA disagrees with you, or the CDC disagrees with you, or the WHO disagrees with you. But is that evidence? Well, no. And, and in fact, Karl Popper, the philosopher of science in the 1950s, said, studies of what scientists believe do not reflect on studies of how nature behaves. That's a great line, right? Right. It's a great <laughs> line because I'm studying nature, not, what, not the beliefs of scientists. If I want to study the beliefs of scientists, it would be a different paper in a different journal. <laughs>
1: Well, okay, I, I'm laughing, and we're both laughing, but, I mean, you're kind of suggesting that a lot of people died that didn't need to, actually, aren't you? We believe that, if, if the mortality
0: numbers are accurate. And there's reasons not to believe that, because, as I said at the beginning, that this has been an epidemic of fear, that agencies have, have magnified the fear component in order to control behavior. So people who died in motorcycle accidents with a positive COVID test became deaths from COVID. And so we didn't really know how many were real COVID. And then there was a study done that showed that 94% of COVID deaths had other causes listed. So only 6% of nominal deaths from COVID had only COVID as the cause of death and nothing else. But that's the other extreme. That's too far of an extreme. People have conditions you know, that aren't really the cause of death that may or may not have been contributory, and this is a whole gray zone that COVID might have been the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, or maybe it was just contributory. You know, maybe it was the end stage um, heart failure that was the cause of death that was exacerbated enough when COVID hit and made their lung function reduced, you know, but it was really the heart disease that was the cause of death. So it's really hard. When you really get down to it, to identify the single responsible cause of death. And so we don't really know the degree to which this was manipulated to make the numbers of deaths larger th- because of COVID than what really was some other rational way of calculating the, the numbers of deaths. So it's very hard to understand this. Even with the statistics that we have, it's very hard to understand.
1: I've heard discussed a number of times, you know, the, uh, I guess, recommendation to the CDC to study how many of the children that are listed as having died with COVID actually died from COVID? Because it's a small, something like in the two, or 400, I think, or something like this, right? So from October um, to October of yeah. uh, 2020 to this year, I think
0: there were 491 deaths in the 5 to 11 year range with COVID. Now, that's the problem that kids in the hospital with some serious underlying condition that happened to be COVID positive that are asymptomatic and tested, you know, and found to be, you know, battling or infected with, with the, the virus, get called dying from COVID. But in fact, in the CDC's own review slides, they say COVID associated deaths. So they're not even saying with or from, they're just leaving it to the reviewer to try to figure out what they mean. And in fact, a study that came out earlier this year showed that among hospitalized children with COVID, about half were there because of the COVID and half were there that happened to have COVID. So if we take the 490 divide by two, we're about 245, something like that, that might have died with COVID. Um, among those, I think that it's not just 5 to 11s. I think that, that, that's zero to, to 12 that number but the, the point of that is that among these 200 or 240 almost all of those have chronic conditions either diabetes or obesity or they, they have immunocompromised because they've had cancer uh, you know or, or other chronic conditions that put them at very high mortality risk from covid because of the, their conditions right healthy children probably zero or very close to zero of that number. Um, Marty Macri at at Johns Hopkins reported on a study from his institution of 48,000 children. He asserted that no healthy children in that study had died from COVID. And so that's the real bottom line. Are we talking about zero or one or five, you know, across the country or 10? We don't really know exactly, but those numbers are smaller than the number of children who've died from influenza each year in past years when we've had flu epidemics, as we usually do, except for last year. So, and, and it's a tenth the number that die from traffic accidents. Hmm. It's, a, you know, it's lower than the number who get hit by lightning, so, and, certain, and certainly lower than what flu does. So why are we forcing, potentially forcing, all children to get vaccinated to save approximately zero? Since we know we can tell who are the high-risk children. Why aren't we vaccinating high-risk children? Why aren't we letting parents and doctors decide who's at high risk and letting them choose whether to be vaccinated or not? There's pros and cons for that discussion and I'm not going to argue either side because it's a real discussion. The real discussion is, however, that all children across the country do not need to be vaccinated because they're not protecting anyone. They're not protecting adults from the illness, they're not protecting elderly, they're not protecting other children, they're not protecting teachers by getting vaccinated and they're not protecting themselves because healthy children don't need it for themselves. So people will argue every one of the things that I just said, but in fact it's very clear that children do perfectly well with this illness when they get it. Either they're asymptomatic or they have a headache, they're a little tired, they sleep a little long for a day or two, you know, and that's about it. That's the extent of COVID in young children. It's not much different than a a light flu or a cold in children. And that is probably how the illness is essentially meant to be manifested in a society where all children get it as little children and get through it without a big ruckus and go on and and then everybody's protected after that and adults don't have to worry about it because they all had it as children. And that's most likely how this whole thing would work. But what happened now is we as as naïve immunologically naïve adults are exposed to this and react totally differently you know, because we didn't get it as children and we don't have that immunity. Well, some people do. That you have to explain why 75 percent plus or minus of people who've had COVID had it asymptomatically. That's the adults who've had COVID. That it, there's a lot of immunity in the population because
1: of of all the these people who've had it asymptomatically. Okay, that's I just want to stop on that. This 75% of all adult of this is a study you're talking about specifically, yes?
0: So there's there's yeah. been two or three studies mostly done by CDC where they've sampled blood samples in blood banks to test for COVID. Over time, and compared that to the number of individuals who have been PCR tested or symptomatic, who that for their who've been symptomatic of COVID, and what they found is in the first study in early to mid 2020, they found approximately sevenfold the number of people who've actually had COVID by testing is seven times the number who actually were symptomatic with COVID. Okay, now with in the recent year with with the Delta strain, that's come down to more like 3 to 1. Okay, So it's somewhere in that range and what that means is, so when a state, for example, reports that it's had 200,000 cases per million people with COVID, that's by testing, so it's either symptomatic or people who were screened and got tested, so 200,000 cases per million is 20 percent of the population has had COVID by testing or symptomatic, that means if you multiply by that by five, essentially everybody's had COVID. Okay. If that number is five, the, between three and seven, I'm just saying if it's approximately five, then that's the ballpark for estimating where the real immunity is. And that's why you see states like North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, other states that had minimal or no lockdowns, where everybody mixed, lots of people got COVID early, and people didn't get very sick because they had relatively young, healthy populations that were doing most of the mixing, that they built up large amounts of population immunity, what we call herd immunity, early on. And so they were, they were done, largely done. Now Delta came, some of the people, some of that um, natural immunity might have been not quite enough to deal with, with the Delta, so, they've had a very small low level bump over the last few months, you know, that is probably going down also. Um, but nothing like the states that locked down, like Vermont and Hawaii and so on, that spent all their time locked down and with very severe, severe cur- curtailments of mixing, and now are having these uh, waves of, of pandemic that were bigger than what they first saw, you know, in early 2020 because it was misguided to try to suppress something that was going to be endemic no matter what anybody did. And the realization of when you take measures that just prolonged the, the pandemic, it just gives it more time to build up and you have more and more waves. If you let the pandemic go through the society in a controlled safe way in the first waves and you control how people respond to that infection in a way that minimizes their damage, their personal damage, you get through it. And that was the exact opposite. That was what we were trying to say early on in, in April, May, June of 2020 that you have to let this go, get through the population and develop natural immunity and that is how we would solve it. And that didn't happen because of financial interest for selling products to deal with it instead of letting it happen on
1: its own. So there's something called let it rip, right, with which Jay says, uh, says, you know, you know we're, I'm talking about focus protection, this is not let it rip, what are you talking about? The focus protection? Yes. So how do you do it safely? That's
0: focus protection. Did we know how to protect people You know, in, in June of, of 2020 when people were dying in nursing homes because infected people were putting back in the nursing homes? It wasn't just New York. It happened in New Jersey and Connecticut also. Sixty percent of the mortality in the first months of the pandemic in Connecticut was in Connecticut nursing homes. Um, did people know how to deal with that? yes and no. It wasn't the right thing to do, but they did they know what tools they might have had to set up shelters for infected elderly people to, instead of putting them back in nursing homes? I don't know that people knew that was something they could do. Um, so d- they didn't do that and, but at the same time we weren't using the medications that could have been used that would have saved those people. That elderly people uh, have frail immune systems and uh, Dr. George Farid in Southern California recognized early on that you can't just give hydroxychloroquine and zinc and vitamin D and antibiotics um, day four or five, which works for, for middle-aged people perfectly well, doesn't work for frail elderly because the virus has had no immune system growing to try to suppress it because of their age and disabilities. In them, you have to give it on day one. How do you give it on day one? It means you have to screen them daily. You screen them for fever and uh, pulse oximeters, the little toys that you buy at the Walgreens, you know, for $30 and you can test your blood oxygen levels um, and doing that twice a day. And when when, when those people had their oxygens were dropping but they weren't otherwise symptomatic and then you found that they already had a fever that you wouldn't have recognized you start treating them and that's what he did in nursing homes and he was very effective in saving the lives of people in nursing homes because he was getting to them on day one and this kind of aggressive safe method of, of treating people is what works and should have been done but it requires people who are willing to use what they know in classic medical practice the way doctors were classically trained which is each one is the Sherlock Holmes doctor of figuring out what you're supposed to do and how it works and the best you can do and treat the patient and not formulaic things that your hospital board or your medical practice board says these are the drugs you must use and you can't veer from this and we're telling you how to practice
1: medicine. Okay, That's destroyed medicine. A couple of things I'm thinking, one of them is well to do what you just described as this doctor did with the nursing homes, you, you also had to be realized that you're bucking the entire system because the entire the system is telling you a radically different thing. Yes. Right? For a lot of people, that's a big step. Yes, you're really driving at something that everybody's
0: wondered about in this whole pandemic, which is why the people who stood up to the narrative have stood up to the narrative. What aspect of personality has made people who think they're right, stand up? For what they think is right in spite of the narrative, in spite of social penalties, in spite of potential economic penalties and career penalties. Why are they, you know, foolishly, naively, like me, have stood up just because I'm not going to lie about what nature says when I'm the reporter for what I'm, you know, the middleman. Nature says something to me and I just translate that into English. You know, I'm not going to misrepresent that saying that nature is saying something else because it's just not in my person, I guess, to lie about something like that i wouldn 't be a scientist what 's the point of doing scientists doing science if you 're going to just say you know be a tool for some company to misrepresent nature to say it says something else, then why would I have spent a whole career doing you know taking a low paid job you know as a scientist when I could have been making a lot more practicing medicine or, or you know in the private sector doing something so for me there 's no roadblock, you know, other than having to fight off the little stings that come around in the periphery to deal with saying what I think is the truth. And and I said early on in this, when I had only some of the evidence for hydroxychloroquine, I said this is a very strong evidential signal and uh, if any study comes out, that's a valid study, done properly, that gives a very different answer than this, I will re- reevaluate because I'm a scientist. That's what scientists do. You get new study, new data, new opinion, new theory. Work from that, support that, refute that. That's how science works. It's always evolving. So that was my paradigm. However, I al- already knew that I would be very astonished had there been a study, a valid study, that showed that the drug didn't work. And in fact, after that, five more studies came out Everyone stronger than the previous one showing how good the, this drug and its combinations work for preventing hospitalization, preventing death. And so it didn't surprise me that more studies were coming out. It gratified me to think that I had more evidence to say what I'd been saying all along, you know, because it, you do take some degree of risk when you purport that nature is speaking a certain way with limited evidence. Um, but I was secure enough to think that this was very strong evidence even when I started. So, why other people have stood up to this, why Dr. Fareed stood up, because he believes his experience. He treated enough patients to know that this was the way the world works. He's Harvard med school educated. He's a very smart person. He's a very caring physician. He spent his whole career, he spent half of his career in the lab doing science and the second half of his career treating patients. And he's a very other directed person and he wants to do good by each and every per- person that comes to him. And that's what medicine really is about at that level and why he's uh, a clinician on the front lines and not an academic physician in some university who's never seen a COVID patient and is pontificating about how COVID patients you know, should be treated when they've never treated a COVID patient. You know. And there's this, an academic disdain for local docs In general, that academics think that they are at the top of the medical intellectual world and because they're doing their research, their clinical research, in some respects it's good and then for those areas that they actually study that's fine but for diseases on the front line, the doctors on the front line who are exploring, who are saying, well this treatment works but maybe I'll try this in this patient and that seemed to work a little better, maybe I'll try it in a few more patients and gradually accrete knowledge about how to treat things is the classical model for how diseases on the front line are managed and that's what worked for the doctors who are willing to do that in this pandemic like all illnesses have have dealt with in the past
1: and that's what's brought the the realm of knowledge to how we have treatment regimens well and so this is very interesting to me too because you know i'm not an entirely a stranger to medicine i have you know medical doctors in the family and so forth but you know it wasn't entirely obvious to me this that the 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 doctor-patient relationship is sacrosanct. It's a one-on-one thing. Using a repurposed drug is perfectly reasonable if you have, if you believe, as a doctor, uh, based on the evidence, that you should use it, that you can try it, that you can help save someone's life. You know, I, I imagine that there was some kind of you know bigger um, i don't know kind of influence or board or organization that, that would be setting such things you know this is this has been a, 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 a my own learning process in realizing all of us, actually. you know
0: <laughs> right right well you know i think that part of the problem is that the whole society evolves and we evolve by little steps of decline so that each one of them is not really perceptible. And we take for granted, we accept a slightly lessening of the quality until suddenly you wake up thinking, how do we get to rigidified medicine? How do we get to doctors who can't practice the way they think, who are corporate doctors and almost automatons, robots you know, following the recipes that, that their institutions require them to use. How do we get to there? And and how did doctors lose their independence and lose their ability to think for themselves and so on? And those are economic forces that people weren't paying attention to because they succumbed little by little as the temperature on the pot kept rising, and the frog, that's us, inside the pot, kept trying to swim and cope with it until the frog got boiled. You know, that our society has been like that. Probably multiple aspects that we don't pay attention to, but
1: certainly in regard to the quality of medical care, you know, and it, it's sad, unfortunately. Well, it's it, it's interesting because a lot of you know we've been doing this series of uh, interviews at this Brownstone Institute inaugural conference, and this has been. Kind of coming up again and again, the idea of rude awakenings that these last few years have provided a rude in Multiple areas. This isn't one that I had considered before, right? That yeah. you just described. That's fascinating and, and frankly, you know, important that we that we realize this, right? Well, I'm a doctor, and I have so I have had a couple of email groups.
0: Uh, mostly doctors. The, the first one it started including other people, lawyers and scientists and professionals and so on, got to more than 2,500 and I was getting 300 emails a day that I couldn't possibly cope with. So I, I left a one. I'm, I'm accessible by email. If people email me directly. Uh, you know, I, I respond. But I started another one uh, with just, supposed to be just doctors. It has a few others, but now it's about 250. It's a little more manageable. I only get a hundred emails a day to deal with. Um, so, and, and these doctors, a number of them, were all complaining about how their ability to practice medicine had been declining, and one in particular in Connecticut, who at the beginning of 2021, was actively treating COVID outpatients, prescribing hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, antibiotics, other things, being very aggressive, measuring antibody levels and T-cells, and so on, and really doing proper medical care for people who are at risk. And then his practice was bought out by one of the Connecticut corporate medical practices, Mm. who immediately told him he cannot use hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And he had to stop treating patients that way. He can still use steroids a little bit um, and an aspirin and anticoagulants, you know, and, and Tylenol. And it's put a, a big damper on his ability to practice the medicine that he wants to practice. And so I have to, I've had to stop referring patients to him and to find other patients in Connecticut for local people. Uh, and I refer people who ask me all the time, I get emails from, from patients all across the country and, and actually from the world, saying, "How do I find a, a doctor who'll treat me? I've got COVID. And I you know, and there are not lots of resources, our website, earlycovidcare.org, it, we set up to provide information on the, the evidence behind various treatments, of which we have maybe a dozen now, including hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, Pevopyvire, um, fluvoxamine, steroids. Uh, antibiotics, vitamins, zinc, uh, you know, everything, the colchicine, everything you could find. So also listings of doctors and, uh, and, so we, and telemedicine groups. And so we refer to, the, to that page and provide, if they're local information, provide information to people who are looking for care. And I've had maybe hundreds of people who've emailed me back saying, you know, I felt like I was at death's door when I emailed you and you gave me this information. I went to them and I got treated and I recovered in two or three days. When you use these medications, that's how well they work. Maybe it wasn't 100%, but people knew they were, they were getting better, that they, that they were substantially better in that time frame. And that's very gratifying to me at this stage of my career, the science is great and I love the science that I've done and I've got some really good papers out there that I like, but it's not personally gratifying to know that you've saved people's lives or, or contributed to saving people's lives. You know, even for me, not practicing medicine and not having that tangible feel of relating to patients so directly that my clinical colleagues have, but still getting a taste of that
1: at this stage of my career has been very gratifying. When we're talking about um, using these therapeutic treatments, including one called The Kitchen Sink, which is, I guess, a whole bunch of these things mixed together. I, you know, Some prominent personalities have gotten that, like a, you know, Joe Rogan or, or Tim Poole. Um, and, and it's always met with a kind of a bizarre backlash, right? Well, I think the backlash
0: is because the idea that they actually got treated and that they're a public persona and they're saying I took early treatment and it worked. Not to mention I didn't even say monoclonal antibodies. That's another component of of early treatment that contributes very dramatically um, along with all the other medications. The real problem is that as we've learned from AIDS, viral illnesses are difficult to treat by single medications. They require two or three to clobber the virus in different ways. one of the things that that means is that all the studies that test single drugs like this tested hydroxychloroquine versus placebo is an almost useless study because that's not enough to really damage the virus and its replication now th- what that also means is we're not going we don't know whether two is enough you know and so doctors are willing to throw everything into the patient as long as they think it's safe You know, if a patient starts to have adverse events, they start throwing up, feel bad, or whatever, they have to back off. But until you know you've saved the patient, you're going to do everything that you can. And so it's better to be conservative and use more as long as you believe it's safe. Now, various of these medications are extremely safe, and and that's why they've been used. The, The really interesting thing about this is that the new medications that have been developed that uh, are under FDA approval review are all things that target the virus. And that means when the virus mutates, as it will, that that targeting will become less and less effective. Whereas hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and other medications do not target the virus. They target the host, the person. They make the person less amenable to being infected by the virus in a general way and that means it doesn't much matter what the spike protein does and mutates in the virus that it's still going to be blocked from getting into cells by the hydroxychloroquine and zinc and, and the replication enzyme that replicates the virus is going to be blocked by that or ivermectin and other molecules that do this. They target the host, the, 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 the body, the person and that isn't going to change, isn't going to mutate in the same way. And so these medications are much more likely to last through variations in the virus that occur because of selection. Because anytime you give something to a virus that, uh, that mutates a lot, that only suppresses some of the virus, the virus that gets around the vaccine, that gets around the immune system, that gets around the medication, then becomes the one that multiplies out and becomes effective to the next person. That it evades the immunity, it evades the suppression. And even though the suppression suppresses all boats, it lowers the water for everything, but some of the boats get around that and get out. And that's the problem. And that's why using vaccines in the middle of a pandemic promotes generation of mutant strains that evade the vaccines and why it's not in general it's not a good idea to do that unless the vaccines work so well that they reduce the ability of the virus to spread so yes they might make mutant strains but the strains can't quite get out to the next person to infect a larger number because getting out is also a step that the virus has to accomplish. Not just multiplying in a person, but being coughed or sneezed or breathed out to the next person. Also, it's like sperm, you know, trying to get into an ovum. You have, start with 300 million sperm and you end up with one that actually gives you the fertilized egg. It's because each step along the way cuts by a thousand the ability of the next step to work. And the same is true for the virus, that getting from one person to the next cuts it by a thousand or a million or whatever to be able to get out and so even if you make mutant strains they may or may not succeed. So all of that has to be accomplished and a vaccine that cuts the... the, the makes the immunity so strong that even though you can make some mutant strains they don't quite get out is enough. It doesn't, that's the level of what we call sterilizing. That's enough. But these vaccines don't come close enough to that. They, When you hear 90% effective or 95% effective, that's the optimal in the period between two weeks and four months. It goes up and then comes back down, and that's the optimal, and 90% isn't enough. Okay? It would have had to have been 99% in order to get there. 90% is enough to, to help people who would otherwise might have gotten sick. So there's a benefit of those vaccines for the people who didn't have adverse events that they do get helped in the short term. We don't know what, anything about the long term consequences. That's a totally separate discussion for the next year or the year after. The, the vaccines do help in that short time frame, and then but not enough to keep so we, we've seen in Israel, for example, with the booster, the, the the numbers, the case numbers drop dramatically. So we know in the short term that they work. Do they work enough? That's the real question. And the answer is we don't know yet because that booster is going to, going to wear out in another three months and then we have to see what comes back there too. And we really do not want to live in a, what's called a subscription model of vaccination where people have to get these vaccines every three or four or six months that we already know there's evidence from uh, Public Health UK that, that the vaccination reduces by a small increment the ability of the immune system to cope with infections in general. And so for most people in middle age or younger, they have good immune systems and are able to cope. You cut it by a little bit, it doesn't have that much damage. But if that happens each time you get vaccinated and you have to get vaccinated every six months, by the time three or four years have passed, now you may have made a sizable amount of damage across the population to people for other illnesses, flu, respiratory syncytial virus, other coronaviruses, maybe even the common cold. We don't know what's going to happen to people's immune response to that after this long-term buildup of minor increments of damage. And so these are all the virologists' considerations as to how to manage the pandemic and why the vaccination strategy was a very simplistic idea at first and why it, it was what I called In the range of plausibility arguments, not scientific arguments, that the whole pandemic has been forced on people's acceptance based on plausibility. Vaccine, that sounds plausible, we'll go with that. Without understanding the real scientific ramifications of it, which were suppressed. And our government agencies suppressed that, and so on. And as early treatment was suppressed, okay, because of plausibility arguments, you know. Well, Uh, hydroxychloroquine, even though it's been safely used in in tens of uh, hundreds of millions of people, now we've got COVID. We don't know it's safe in COVID, even though we know it's safe for all those those tens of millions of people in malaria and rheumatoid diseases and and autoimmune diseases and so on, safe for them, but not safe for COVID. So what evidence is there not safe for COVID? None, because we actually didn't let you use it for outpatients because we blocked that in March of 2020 before it really had a chance to be widely used in official capacity. So you have to ask where all this malfeasance came from and why it left plausibility arguments driving people's acceptability, social acceptability of these messages.
1: Fascinating. You know, one thing that just struck me, you know, people, a number, I've seen this uh, comparison made often, I wanted to get you to comment on it, but the idea of booster shots every however many months, isn't that analogous to, you know, getting a flu shot every year or something like this?
0: Well, yes and no. We've known for a few decades that flu shots are safe, almost entirely safe, that they maybe don't work as well as we'd like, if at all, in some people. Um, But aside from that, that if something is really proven to be safe and not damaging to the immune system in other respects, then it's like what I said early on for hydroxychloroquine. Even if we don't know that it works, we know that it's safe. There's no downside. There can only be an upside. You know, The only downside would be that you gave it instead of giving something else that might have been better. And since we didn't have anything that we knew was better at the time, there couldn't have been a downside. And the same is, is true for flu vaccine. That And every year we have a new flu vaccine, in theory, made to combat the new strain of the illness, of the virus. Whereas now we're giving a year and a half old boosters. Would you take a year and a half old flu vaccine? No. Why would you take a year-and-a-half-old COVID vaccine? Okay. Well, the argument is that it works partially, or it works well for some people, or it works well, well enough. You know, I, I don't know how to evaluate the, the well-enough aspect of things. I'm an epidemiologist because I don't really like virology or basic science or, or do it well enough to be professional in that. I'm professional in epidemiology, where I take all that and see what happens in people. So, to me, the bottom line is what happens in people when we do studies of people to see what actually matters. And so, I think that it's clear that the vaccines have been beneficial in large degree for at least short periods of time. And we don't know the damage that they're doing in longer time frame. And we don't don't know how long they actually do work. And now we're getting information that they work on the order of six months, maybe plus or minus for different aspects for reduction of of infection for reduction of mortality risk for reduction of hospitalization risk different outcomes each one has to be studied on its own so you know we we are still
1: evolving in knowledge so you've touched on this already but i guess as we we finish up here you know what <laughs> what does this whole reality of you know the fear and the reaction and you know corporate interest and you know all this stuff that you what what does this say about the medical profession as it stands and what needs to happen
0: um, without being too dramatic about this there was a, a, an outstanding essay in tablet magazine from a few months ago written by Ashley Hernandez talking about why doctors in Germany in the 1930s became Nazis and the whole public health institution and the medical institution in Germany in the 1930s promoted the Nazi propaganda and messaging construed for how to manage public health and at times of famine they decided that if the whole society couldn't support food for everybody that they would remove the people who needed the food the least meaning helpless, uh, handicapped, disabled young people, frail elderly, you know, and so on who were expendable when the food had to go around to the people who needed it, whatever that meant, you know. And they operationalized rational considerations without human moral considerations. And public health has the risk of doing that. And that's what's happened to us in our society, and I was recognizing this more than a year ago, when you have big lies being propagated as propaganda through the media, through the government, through agencies, and so on, that the the don't believe your lying lies. All these doctors treating outpatients successfully. Oh no, those drugs don't work. You know, this was a big lie then. Why and who was was purveying this was that message. This is, I think, why Dr. Hernandez wrote this essay in the first place because she was recognizing the commonalities to what was happening now. When you have so much day-in-day-out propaganda that people believe it because they're bombarded with it through all of the major media that they accept these messages and they and they act on those messages instead of the truth the, the the reality of of life and science and medicine so doctors i think are just as frightened just as anxious as everybody else and maybe more so because they've invested so much time and effort into getting their careers going they feel they may have feel they have more to risk even than just you know joe plummer you know, or, 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 or somebody else, uh, you know. They went into their field because of stature and considerations of accomplishment and doing well for society and their patients and, and all of that. They, they feel that they are at higher risk in some intangible way, I think. And so they're more likely to toe the line, and those lines have been enforced on them through the corruption of all the medical agencies, the, the, the medical review boards of, of all the states, largely all the states, The pharmacy review boards have all pushed a top-down message coming from FDA, CDC, WHO. I have to get in a a comment about the FDA and its website. Um, This is something that has made me the angriest over this last year and a half, which is in July of 2020, the FDA mounted a a website warning against hydroxychloroquine used for outpatients. The website's still there. It says, warning, hydroxychloroquine should not be used for outpatient treatments because of risk of cardiac adverse events. And then in the small print, the fine print, underneath that big bold black letter warning, it says, we base this warning on adverse events that we have observed in hospital patients. This is a fraud. They used hospital disease, which all medical professionals recognize as a different disease, as I've said, than outpatient Flu-like illness that has stood up there. The people the, everyone that says hydroxychloroquine, can, hydroxychloroquine can't be used points to that website and says, "Here is the reason why we can't do it." The states, the AMA, you know, the pharmacy board—they all point to that. Foreign countries, their governments, all point to that, saying we can't do it because the FDA says not to do it. And I've railed against this in the media that we are a part of, you know, and the way that that the propaganda reacts to to this is ignore it. Ignore all this and I'm saying this now because the general public has to be the one that gets angry. The general public should be furious at the way people have been treated in the country by suppression of these drugs, by that kind of website that suppresses the ability of doctors to practice medicine. This is what should have been done and why people should be angry. They should be angry at the government. They should be angry at President Trump for not leading the fight in this when he was in power. They should be angry at the government now for not leading the fight to make these drugs available. These drugs work, there's no question, and they should have been out there. Whether or not vaccines are used, and there's a role for vaccines, and I'm not saying that, there's no role for universal vaccination but there is a role for targeted vaccination for people who have reasons to do the risk-benefit analysis and see it's in their benefit. And there's a reason why those people will still get COVID, that the vaccines are not 100% effective and may still need to have treatment, and these drugs are the treatments of choice. This has to be there, and people need to be angry about this to see why these drugs have been suppressed from them for reasons that have nothing to do with the science and the
1: medicine. Okay, you're given the opportunity to create policy um, at the level of the CDC or FDA. Um, as, As our final question, what do you do?
0: You open up, you remove the FDA's website, you apologize for it, you say that there's a role for these medications to be used. You basically open the tap, as some states have done, Florida and Texas have been pretty free about prescribing, allowing the prescription of of the medications. There are other states where they are free but quiet about it. Um, And so you open those taps and you let people become knowledgeable. You get them out. We've still got 60 million doses of hydroxychloroquine in the Strategic National Stockpile that should be released. There's no shortage of that. The drug can be made in about 15 minutes that the raw ingredients it's a very simple drug to make, the raw ingredients are plentiful, that it, it's made all over the world. It's, that's why it's so inexpensive to make. Um, and so it can be supplied in very large quantity. Ivermectin can be made in large quantity. It takes a little longer to make it, but it's still something that can be made relatively straightforwardly. Um, and so you do that. You, you make those medications available. You make the recipes for doing this available to doctors to know how to do it. There are countries where hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are over-the-counter. And so you make this available everywhere. Prescription is better because doctors really need to be involved in helping people to fight this. It's not a, you know, do-it-yourself thing at home. And so you make it available, practical, and easy to do, and you get people over it. And this does two things. Number one, it reduces the anxiety dramatically. So people will live their normal lives and get everything back together. Secondly, the people who get COVID and get beyond it have natural immunity. Natural immunity is how we're going to get out of this endemic disease. Vaccine immunity works, but it's short-lived. Natural immunity is much more longer-lived in spite of all the propaganda, saying, well, we don't know how long natural immunity is. Well, do we know how long vaccine immunity is? Well, no, the natural immunity is better. It's been better. There's there's now 124 studies on the earlycovidcare.org website. It grows by half a dozen studies a week, if not more, looking at natural immunity and how well it works. So this is... Virology 101, natural immunity was known to the ancients, to the Greeks. They knew that people only got sick once from a disease and got over it and were immune to it when it came back. This is, it's, you can't suddenly say that all human knowledge disappears because you have a vested interest in selling a product that, that can't allow that to be true. So that's how we end this pandemic. is by having large amounts of natural immunity, which makes any subsequent waves into bumps that and bumps that are treatable bumps and that's how we get through it and we have to do that by opening the tap to the medications that that work whether they're new medications or old medications expensive or 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 cheap we have to make them practical safe usable and that's what's going to get us out of this that's the
1: key well Dr. Harvey Risch it's such a pleasure to have you on thank you great to be with you our team reached out to the FDA the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, but they did not respond to our request for comment.